Hello and welcome to the spiritguides.co.uk network radio show with your host Mark Chatterton. Tonight we would like to welcome onto the show Anthony Peake who has been researching the relationship between the human brain and consciousness for a number of years. Anthony has written four books which we will be discussing tonight. As well as being a member of the Society for Psychical Research, he is also a member of the International Association for the Study of Dreams, the International Association of Near-Death Studies, and the Scientific and Medical Network. So a warm welcome to you, Anthony. Thank you very much. Great to be on the show. You had your first book, Is There Life After Death, published in 2006. But before we go on to talk about your books, can you tell us what were you doing before this? Um, had you always been had an interest in the paranormal, the unexplained, or did you have a eureka moment that started you off? Well, I suppose it's a little bit of both. Um, I've been fascinated by uh, the par- paranormal phenomena, I suppose, since my very early teens, um, when I used to get a magazine called Man Myth Magic. Um, this is in the late 60s. And I've I've always been intrigued by how human consciousness relates to reality. And when I was at university, um, myself and a couple of friends had a, a very informal psychical research group and we used to rush around the Warwickshire countryside trying to find haunted pubs and such like. Um, very much the idea, really, just find a pub, have a few beers and talk about ghosts and things. But um, it was. I then um, did my first degree at Warwick University and then I did postgraduate at the London School of Economics. But my academic career was very much focused on social sciences, um, whereas um, my interest in uh, the, the, the more marginal areas very much moved into UFOs and such like at that time. But for many, many years, I earned, I earned a crust, as it were, as um, initially an employee relations manager with various companies. And uh, from then on, I moved into general human resources management um, but I'd always been interested in these subjects. And the interesting thing is, and what has always intrigued me, is that everything I've read over the last, what, 40-odd years, uh, in effect, um, I found useful, uh, which is quite strange. It's almost as if I was being guided to write this book at this time. Uh, and it's something we can probably touch upon later, this idea of, of guidance, as it were. Um, and it's something that does intrigue me. But very much, it was only probably around about 10 years ago that I decided that I would fulfill an ambition and write a book. Uh, and that first book was Is There Life After Death? The Extraordinary Science of What Happened When We Die. Uh, and at that stage, I never, ever expected to get um, a publisher uh, nor did I ever expect, even if I got a publisher, that anybody other than my immediate family would uh, would read it. Um, and here I am now, 35,000 copies later. Uh, that first book's now been translated into various foreign languages, including Spanish and Russian and Polish, with new deals coming through all the time. And I just keep having to pinch myself because, you know, it's 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 been a wonderful journey and uh, it's yet to stop, really. Oh, that's very interesting. So what was it that prompted you to write the book, uh, Is a Life After Death, then? Ah, that's where it uh, becomes stranger and stranger. I didn't actually know what I was going to write about. Um, all I knew was I'd, I'd, I'd finished a, a, a contract uh, and I was in the position that I had a little bit of disposable income. And I was in the position that I could spend a year um, writing. And 
I had no idea what I was going to write about. I had a vague idea that it was something to do with consciousness and, and how it relates to reality. But that was about all. And it was quite curious because on the very first day, I was sitting in front of my a blank computer screen at my house, house then in Horsham in West Sussex. And just a blank word screen. And I thought, what am I going to write about? And the most curious thing happened because I started to feel quite strange in the sense that I started getting tingling in the end of my fingers and things. And I immediately recognized this as being the aura state of a migraine attack. Now, I, I suffer from a classic, classical migraine, which is migraine that doesn't necessarily mean a headache, but does mean that you have very, very severe visual disturbances and disruptions, uh, together with sort of very, very curious physiological feelings, like, as I said, my fingers feeling dead, my lips going numb and all these other things. But something else very strange happened because as I looked out the window, I suddenly realized I'd done it before. I'd actually sat at that point looking at that computer screen, looking at that view. When I came out of the, the aura state, I was fortunate that a, a headache didn't then develop. I knew exactly what I was going to write about. I was going to write about the deja vu phenomenon because I wanted to know exactly what had happened to me and what it was I was experiencing there. Was I experiencing a precognition? Was I experiencing a memory of a previous time I'd done that? What did it signify? And it started me on an incredible adventure, because I very quickly found that deja sensations are very much linked to aura states with migraine. So clearly there was the initial link. So clearly there was some form of neurological link to it. But on top of that, I quite by chance managed to come across an academic paper written by a Swiss researcher by the name of um, Dr. Arthur Funkhauser. It's not he's American, but he actually lives in, in Bern in Switzerland. And he'd written a, 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 an article called entitled The Dream Theory of Deja Vu. And it stunned me when I read this because what he was suggesting was that a deja vu sensation is the fact that you have in your immediate past had a dream. And in reality, you start to live that dream. You know, like sometimes you forget dreams, and then suddenly something will trigger you and remind you that you've had a dream. Art's hypothesis is this is what deja vu is. It's a dream you've had that's precognitive. Now, I was in the fortunate position of being able to contact uh, Dr. Funkhauser, and subsequently we've become very good friends, and we've met many times, and he's helped me in a lot of my writing, because by background, he's a quantum physicist, so it's actually quite interesting, his background in many, many ways. He's an expert in, in holography and, and holograms. And when I met him, when I, I first spoke to him, I said, your solution is a very intriguing one, but it has a problem because it suggests that precognition is a reality, that the dreams are precognitions. And he said, yes, it seems to be that there is evidence that we can perceive in certain times the future. This then stimulated me to go off on a tangent trying to think, well, how can that happen? How can I, how can I know the future? How can I know the future in a scientific way? How can I know the future taking into account the way science perceives the world? And around about 
about six or seven months later, I ended up with a new hypothesis about what happens to human consciousness at the point of death. Because to cut a long story short, what the first book proposes is something I call the cheating the ferryman hypothesis. And what this proposes is, is that when people have near-death experiences, they report many sensations, you know, going down tunnel, they report meeting dead people or people they know, they report meeting something called a being of light, they have this idea of floating outside of their body. But one of the other things that is, is intriguing is something called technically the panoramic life review. And this is the thing where people turn around and say, my life flashed before my eyes. Now, this fascinated me because I thought, well, if my life flashes before my eyes, that is evidence that my life has been recorded. Because how else could your life flash before your eyes if it wasn't a recording? And I did a lot of research on this and discovered there is fairly strong evidence from neurology that the human brain records every single thing that we experience in our lives, literally everything. And it encodes it in the brain using holographic principles. And this, again, is not new age. This is very much based upon some of the work of a guy called Carl, Professor Carl Pridman, who was a psychologist who worked at the University of uh, Georgetown in America. Now, if that is the case that I can record all my life, the question is why? And then I thought, well, this is where it might happen. What may happen is that in a near-death experience, your life flashes before your eyes. But in a real death experience, it doesn't flash. It literally is a minute-by-minute -minute recreation of your life. And that minute-by-minute -minute recreation of your life is like an equivalent of the movie The Matrix, or indeed many, many movies deal with this theme. I mean, uh, another classic example of this kind of concept is Vanilla Sky with Tom Cruise. You also have the, um, the classic movie Jacob's Ladder, and all of these deal with the idea of encountering your whole life in the final seconds of your life. But if you encounter it in a recreation of your life, in this final second of your life, where time dilates because one of the other things that's known in near-death experience is that time slows down. You know, you've probably experienced it, and I'll guarantee a lot of your listeners have experienced that sensation when you've been involved in a car crash or an accident or you've been given bad news, where time suddenly slows down. This is, again, a known neurological effect, and it's triggered by a, neuro a substance in the brain called glutamate. Glutamate is the major neurotransmitter of the mammalian brain. It's a chemical that facilitates communication between the neurons of the brain. It is known that glutamate floods the brain at the point of death. So in which case, you fall out of time, so suddenly time is completely different for you, and in that new time, you live your whole life again. Now, while you're living that whole life again, there are occasions when you remember the fact that you've been here before. That's déjà sensation. The déjà phenomenon, by the way, déjà vu means already, already seen, Deja vecu, which is the more correct term, is already lived. So literally, when you have a precognition, what you're doing is actually remembering a memory. Now, and this is where it becomes intriguing for your listeners, because in my second book, I take one of the factors of the first book. In my second book, A Dame and a Guide to Your Extraordinary Secret Self, I suggest that when you're living your life again, 
there is a part of you that remembers the fact you're living your life again and knows what's going to happen, not only next, but through the whole of your life. This being is your higher self. This being is your spirit guide. This is your guardian angel. This is your genius, as the ancient Romans said, or your daemon, as the ancient Greeks called it. This being knows what's going to happen. It is equivalent to a game player in a, a, three, uh, a three-dimensional video game. The game player in a video game, say say you're, you're playing something like, I don't know, Tomb Raider, and you're following Lara Croft down the passages, and as she goes down a passage, some big, huge creature comes out and kills her. What happens? You go back to the start, don't you? And you start again. But this time, you, as the game player, know that there's going to be a huge creature that's going to come out and kill her. So you don't go down that corridor and you go somewhere else. Now, you will rightly turn around to me and say, but hold on a minute. I thought you said we were living in a recording of our life, our life. We are. But the recording that we exist in is not just the recording of our life. It's the recording of every life we could possibly live as in a computer game, because in the computer game, every alternative decision that is made by you as the game player is encoded onto the, the DVD that you're playing and using. It's already encoded. There is no future. There is no past in a computer game. There just is the moment as you pass, pass through it. The reality is rendered second by second as you play the game. Now, in order to accommodate this, I, put, I, I go into quantum physics, and we won't have time here, but if anybody's interested in quantum physics and the background to the quantum physics I'm dealing with here, I'm actually citing called, something called the Everett's Many Worlds Interpretation of Particle Physics, which was proposed by a guy called Hugh Everett III in 1957, which was his PhD paper. But this suggests that there are literally trillions of versions of all of us, and each version of us lays down a different life record. And in laying down those life records, it encodes all that information. And I also believe, and this is something I'm working on in my next book, is that all this information is encoded in something called the zero-point field, which is the equivalent of the Akashic record. It is something that contains the record of everything that ever can happen, everything that will happen, and everything that can possibly happen. Um, are you all with me so far? Yeah, I've, one thing that's come up from that is, what about the idea of predestination? Does that, um, you know, is that one possible thing, or would you argue that that doesn't sort of come into it at all? Well, predestination suggests that there's only one route you can take, isn't it? If I'm predestined to do something, it means that, I, I am trapped in following this particular route. However, if I'm living in this recreation of all my lives, which I technically call the Bohmian IMAX, this is a, this is a, um, a rec recognition of the influence on my work of a guy called Professor David Bohm. It's also a kickback on the work of a guy called Daniel C. Dennett, who's an American um, materialist, uh, eliminative materialist, i.e. somebody that doesn't believe that we're even conscious but that's another aside. Right. And he has something he calls the Cartesian theatre. And I say, we are not existing in the Cartesian theatre, we're existing in the Bohmian IMAX. Now, in the Bohmian IMAX, every single outcome of every decision is encoded in there. And you're not predestined to do things, because everything you can possibly do is also predestined. Because effectively what I suggest is at the end of your first life in the Bohemian IMAX, you live the same life again and again and again 
and again. And you do it thousands, tens of thousands, possibly even millions of times. And each time you do it, you will live a different life. You'll follow a different course. You'll marry the girl from primary school you fancied. You'll take that job down in London. You won't make that terribly bad decision that you made when you were 21. You will follow through all the alternatives. And in doing so, you will eventually live the perfect life. Now, many listeners and you guys are probably thinking, this reminds me of a movie, Groundhog Day. <laughs> in fact, Groundhog Day, um, I was going to call the book Groundhog Life. Now, as an interesting aside, Danny Rubin, who is the guy that wrote Groundhog Day, both the story and the script, um, is now... Danny and I are now in contact and Danny has actually given copies of my first book to most of his friends he's an academic at Harvard uh, in America and he said he's actually said to me that your book intrigues the hell out of me because it does the science of my movie um, because in effect that's what happens in the movie doesn't it uh, Phil Connors the, the weatherman in the movie lives the same day over and over again initially he lives the bad life and he tries to bed the girl and he makes tries to make money and then he suddenly goes into another stage where each day he tries to expand himself by learning foreign languages, learning how to play a musical instrument. But then he starts to do good for doing good's sake. He lives every, the day trying to be underneath the tree to save the little boy falling out of the tree. Or he tries to help the tramp who's dying. He becomes a philanthropist. So what effectively he's doing, it's karma. What he's doing is by living his life over and over again, he's living the perfect life. And at the end of the day, when he lives the absolute perfect life, he's allowed to move on to the next stage of existence, which could be going to heaven. It could be coming back to help his fellow human beings as an advanced being or a, a samsara uh, or an avatar. Uh, many, many things he could do. But effectively, all this has happened in the final second of your life. In other words, somebody watching you die, you live millions of lives in the final second of your life. And this is what I call cheating the ferryman. So would you say um, the traditional idea of reincarnation is slightly different from what you're, you're saying then? Yeah, my, my, my hypothesis doesn't discredit reincarnation, because if you think about it, reincarnation is you dying and being reborn again. In other words, you, you could be reincarnated after you've been through the Bohemian IMAX many, many times. In fact, I would consider that the Bohemian IMAX is extremely Buddhist in the sense that there is a concept in Buddhism called the Bardo state. And the Bardo state is the place between lives, the place you go between incarnations. Now, I... I, I have an open mind about reincarnation. I really genuinely don't know. But one of the things I've always thought about reincarnation is why it doesn't work for me is that if I am reborn again as somebody else and I don't know about my previous life in any shape or form, how on earth can I be progressing? In other words, the only way a human being can progress is by learning by their mistakes. And the only way we can learn by our mistakes is knowing what our mistakes were. But reincarnation is quite precise. You die and then you're reborn as somebody else in a higher or lower caste with no memory of what you did last time. So how can that be progressive? It can't be. You can't be advancing in any shape or form. All you do is you live that each life you live in isolation. 
Um, so to me, as a progressive thing, it doesn't necessarily work. But it doesn't mean it doesn't work logically. And it doesn't mean that there isn't a degree of evidence for reincarnation. If you look at the work of Ian Stevenson uh, from the University of Virginia, he's done quite a lot, or he did do before he went off and died, but he did quite a lot of work in this area. And some of it is quite quite strong in its evidence. So what about the idea of free will? How, how does that come into what you um, propose? Well, you have the free will to make every decision within the Bohemian IMAX, don't you? Now, effectively, if every outcome of every decision you make is already encoded in there, whatever decision you make, you're making a free will. You know, effectively, there is only a certain number of ways I can walk across my living room now. There is only a finite number of ways I can walk across my living room. And I can choose which way I walk across my living room. And I have free will in those but I'm restricted by what things I can do. Free will doesn't stop me. I can't fly as far, as far as free will is concerned. I don't have the free will to fly. So there are restrictions we have, but effectively within the restrictions, we have total freedom as we do within the Bohemian IMAX. Getting back to your second book, The, the Daemon, um, you, you say there's two parts, uh, the, the Daemon and the, is it the Eidolon? The Eidolon, yeah. Eidolon, yeah. yeah. And you, you say that they eventually become one, or is it the dyad, as you put it? The dyad, yeah. Um, could you not argue that this corresponds to the left brain, right brain scenario, or would you say it's something more complex than that? No, it's identical to. Um, yeah. In the book, The Daemon, I have a whole section on uh, the right and left brain. I also have a whole section on split brain operations done by people Roger Sperry and Michael Gasanaga. Um, so I go into great specific detail about new, the, uh, neurochemistry, neurophysiology, uh, and neurosurgery. Uh, and I'm not sure if you're, um, you're aware of this, but in the 19 from the 1950s through to the early 1970s, there were a whole series of experiments done where individuals had their corpus callosum cut. The corpus callosum is a group of nerves that holds together, in effect, the right and left hemisphere. And when these individuals did have their corpus callosum cut, they actually became two people. Hmm. There were two areas of consciousness, both of which had different ideas and different concepts. This, in many ways, uh, explains something called alien hand syndrome. I don't know if you've come across this. Uh, can you explain? Yeah. yeah, it's people who have had either had a split brain operation or they've had a stroke whereby their right and left hemispheres don't communicate now as you may or may not be aware each side of the brain is responsible for the movement of the opposite side of the body so my right hemisphere moves my left side and vice versa now when you've had a stroke that has actually stopped the communication channels it effectively means that you who normally inhabit your dominant hemisphere which is normally your left hemisphere do not have control fully over your left side of your body, which means you don't have control over your left hand. And what has happened is there's been many, many cases of people, for instance, who have gone to the wardrobe to decide what clothes to wear. And they've actually, their right hand has gone out, dominant hemisphere, to pick one particular piece of clothing. And the left hand has started wrestling with them to stop them because the left hand side of the body wants to put something on completely different. Now, again, this is a known effect you know this is this is not sort of anything weird or strange you talk to any psychiatrist alien hand syndrome is something they're aware of 
multiple personality syndrome uh, is also something whereby people have different personalities inside themselves. These are all evidence of the fact that we are not just one personality. But in my Damon Adelon dyad model, I say that the non-dominant hemisphere within there is your daemon. It's your higher self. And this daemon manifests itself in many, many ways. Um, in the, for instance, after I wrote the first book, I received hundreds and hundreds of letters from people around the world who were sending me examples of times in their life when either a voice has warned them, where they've had a dream that has warned them to not do something, um, and sometimes even their hands have changed. I mean, for instance, there's one guy who wrote to me, um, and he was um, uh, in the Rhodesian army, as was in 1969, and he was, he was up in northern Rhodesia in a place called Mount Darwin, and he was riding on the top of an armoured vehicle, manning the machine gun. And as they were driving back, suddenly a voice in his head shouted into his ear, ambush, ambush, ambush. He was so shocked he didn't react. The next thing he felt was being pushed literally out of the seat he was sitting in at the top of the armoured vehicle, off the top of the vehicle into the, the camouflage netting at the side, dodging his finger as he fell. And as he did so, um, a machine gun ripped into the seat where he'd been sitting. He would have received bullets right across his body and he would have been killed instantly. Whatever was that voice in its head, his head, it knew what was going to happen next. Uh, there's another classic case is Juan Fangio, the um, Formula One driver. Um, he was actually in a race and he was coming around a blind bend. And as he did so, his hands grabbed the wheel and turned them in completely the opposite direction and sent him completely in the wrong direction on the race course because round the corner where he couldn't see or hear or anything there'd been a huge pileup had his hands not done that automatically he would have gone into the back of the pileup and been killed these are example after example after example and funnily enough um you mentioned you know that your home t your or what used to live in osmere port um, somebody contacted me comparatively recently where they were down in Mollington, uh, near the Mollington Bonasta Hotel and they were in one of the country lanes along there. And as they were driving along, um, as they were driving along, his, his father, he was in the, the side seat and his, his sister was in the back. And his father suddenly said, I had a dream about this yesterday. We got hit by a lorry. And he literally, his father grabbed the steering wheel and stopped in the lay-by as a lorry came plummeting past on the wrong side of the road. That is the power of the daemon. And I think the daemon is your guiding spirit. I think that people who are spiritualists, people who are mediums, the people, the thing that guides them is their higher self, which is their daemon. And you may be interested to know that uh, last February um, I was invited to do a talk uh, at the Arthur Finlay College in Essex near Stansted Airport, which is one of the major training places for mediums from across the world. And uh, I was invited um, by a friend of mine, uh, Susan, who is um, a medium. And I was expecting to have quite a hostile response from the, the 70 or so mediums in the room when I did my talk on the daemon. I was amazed. The response was so positive. It was incredible. I was approached and they said, 
this explains what's happening to us. It explains it scientifically and it explains it in a way that we can we can take to our clients to say the reason I know things and my spirit guide knows things is my spirit guide has lived this life before. Right. That's um, quite fascinating so far. Let's let's move on to your your third book, The Out of the Body Experience, which I believe came out last year. Um, mm. You begin the book by mentioning a visit you made to Switzerland where you met up with uh, Dr. Engelbert Winkler and you tried out his machine called Lucia, which stimulates the brain in quite an unusual way. Could you tell us a little bit about this experience? Sure, I certainly can. Um, the link between myself and Dr. Engelbert Winkler was made by a friend of mine called Evelyn Alassa Valerano who is a writer on near-death experiences and she's written books with with uh, uh, Kenneth Ring who anybody's out there who knows about near-death experience knows that Kenneth Ring is one of the major guys in this field and Evelyn works at uh, the University of Geneva and she contacted me because she said that um, one of her close friends a consultant psychologist by the name of Dr. Engelbert Winkler had read my first book is the life after death and was so intrigued by it that he was desperate to meet me because it explained a lot of the things that had happened to him in his life. He'd had a near-death experience when he was a young man. She, he then, she then explained to me that Engelbert and another associate of his, who's a consultant neurologist by the name of Dirk Prokol, had worked together and had designed from the bottom up a machine that by using light both stroboscopic light and different intensities of white light can bring about altered states of consciousness. Now, I know that there have been many of these machines marketed over the years, and in fact, I'm in the process of writing my sixth book at the moment, and I will have a whole chapter on the different applications of light, these light machines. Um, a guy called Brian Gislin, uh, who was a Canadian artist, designed one in the 1960s, for instance. But as far as I'm aware, the lucid light device, known as Lucia, is the only one that's actually been designed from the bottom up by neurologists and psychologists. In other words, it's designed to work with the brain. So in other words, they know what they want the light to do within the brain neurologically. Uh, so I was invited over um, and... When I arrived, I was introduced to Engelbert and we had a chat. And then sitting in the corner was the lucid light device. And they said, we're going to get, if you're interested, we're going to give you the strongest session, a 15-minute session with it, just to see what you think. Now, I'm somebody that I'm fairly grounded and extraordinary claims need extraordinary proofs as far as I'm concerned. You know, I'm not somebody that... Um, just has flights of fancy on these things. I want to do the science. And if the science doesn't fit, I need to find alternatives. But effectively, I'm trying to do the science. And it's one of the things I say to people. You read my books, every single thing I say is reference to academic papers, articles, other books. But I never just put something in there without giving you the opportunity to check that my facts are correct. So it's quite an important point for me. So I sit down in front of the lucid light device and I'm told to close my eyes and the light starts. And all I can see through my closed eyes is flickering light. It's the flicker effect. It's something that sometimes probably if you've ever been driving along in a car and there's high trees and there's the sun behind, you get this kind of flicker effect. 
And the flicker effect is known to stimulate the brain in, in curious ways. So I'm having this flickering effect and nothing's happening. And I'm sitting here and I get into about two or three minutes in and I'm thinking, this is going to be really embarrassing. I'm either going to have to pretend something happened or, or I'm just going to be truthful with them, but it didn't work for me. Suddenly, after about three or four minutes, bang, it happened. In my right visual field was an explosion of blue light. And it's the only thing, as if somebody had thrown um, a paint of blue light across my visual field. Suddenly from the left-hand side came red. And the two of them milled in the middle, like, uh, like paint moving around and shimmering. And then it kind of fractionalized into kind of diamond shapes and things. And they began to spin. And they turned into what was a tunnel. Now, immediately, because I'm a professional member of the International Association of Near-Death Studies, I know the tunnel effect. And it was the tunnel effect that was described by people when they have near-death experiences. And I feel like I'm being pulled down a tunnel. Then my eyes start to vibrate in my head. And I started to get concerned. And I turned around to Dirk, the, the neurologist, and I said, is this all right? And he said, yes. What's happened now? Your eyes have now encoded the light and they're reacting to it. But it's, it's nothing to worry about. Now, as all these things are spinning around me, in my extreme right visual field, there's something moving. Now, again, as I mentioned, I get migraine. And anybody who gets classical migraine will recognize what I'm going to describe now. When you have classical migraine, you have things called scotomas. They're kind of breakdowns of your visual field, like little zigzags. This is what was happening in my, my extreme right visual. There was something moving. I asked Engelbert and Dirk whether I could look at it because it would mean taking my eyes away from the flashing light. And they said, yes, you can, because your brain has now encoded the flashing light. So just look away. So I looked down. And as I looked down, what I saw, I could not believe. And even now, every time I describe this, I find it uncanny and unbelievable. I was looking down at the surface of a planet. I was probably about 30 or 40 miles up and I was flying. My chair was flying along, the, along in space overlooking this planet. The planet's surface was made up of, of blue, no, white lights going in straight lines the 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 edge of the planet where a blue light was flickering there were also white lights crossing like a huge checkerboard of light but something else i noticed that i've never really mentioned in interviews before but i've now heard i now understand more about this i could see filaments of light linking everything the kind of tiny filaments coming off the main filaments i couldn't believe it I, I recall grabbing hold of the side of the chair because I was so scared. Now, I have to admit, I lost my nerve. And I said, can you please turn it off? And they turned it off and the, the, the vision just went. It just switched off as if it had literally been switched off. Now, I then spoke a few days. I'll, I'll, I'll just jump ahead now. A few days later, I spoke to another friend of mine who's an Australian expert on out-of-the-body experiences by the name of um, Robert Bruce. And I described this to Robert. I was interviewing him for another radio program, and Robert turned around and said, look at the back cover of my book, 
astral travel. And I did. And he said, is that what you saw? And I said, yes, exactly what I saw. Isn't that amazing? He said, no, not really. Many people see it. It's called astral plane. You saw, I saw the astral plane. So suddenly my whole opinion about out-of-the-body experiences, how they function, how they work, had changed. I was halfway through my book on out-of-the-body experiences at that time. And I rewrote the whole book based upon this experience. Because suddenly I realized that the out-of-the-body experience is a real sensation. It really does happen. My book then was trying to explain the science of what happens. What is happening in the brain? How does the brain stimulate these things? But things then became stranger. Around about 20 minutes afterwards, I was having a conversation with Winkler and Procol and the other people in the room. And suddenly, something started to happen really odd. I felt a sensation that something was moving in the centre of my forehead. It was like a very tiny animal moving. And the only equivalent I can use this is sometimes when you see photographs or when you see x-ray an egg with a snake in it where the snake is moving around inside the egg. It was just like that. And it kept moving, and then it would stop, and then it would move again. I didn't mention this to my associates, and it went through on all through the night. I, kept, I then got, went to bed, and I had the most vivid dreams I've ever had in my life. They were three-dimensional. They were powerful. They were vivid in color and strength. And every time I woke up, there was this bzz, bzz sensation in the middle of my head. I then started checking up on this. Now, I was aware enough of esoteric law to know the concept of the, the Ainu chakra and the third eye. That machine had opened my third eye. It had literally opened my third eye. Since then, whenever I write, whenever I'm feeling creative, whenever really powerful ideas come to me, it starts. It started a couple of days ago when I was writing a section of my new book. And I know when it does it, I'm on the right route. And I believe that the sensations I'm feeling, and this is where it gets really intriguing, is that it's my pineal gland. The pineal gland sits equidistant from the center of your forehead to the back of your head. It sits in the dead center of the brain. It's the only organ, there are one or two other tiny organs, but it's the only organ in the brain that's not mirror imaged. Everything in the brain is mirror imaged. You have two hemispheres, you have two amygdala, you have two hippocampi, you've only got one pineal gland. The pineal gland sits in the center. The pineal gland is surrounded by crystals, very small crystals. It's something called pineal sand. These crystals are piezoelectric. Piezoelectric is crystals. If you press them, they give off an electric current. They give off electricity. They give off electromagnetic energy. Or they can receive electromagnetic energy. Like when you were probably a kid and you had a crystal set. Your pineal gland is your radio receiver, and it can receive messages from somewhere else. It receives messages from something called the zero-point field. Not only that, I think that the lucid light device stimulates the pineal gland to generate a substance known as dimethyltryptamine. Dimethyltryptamine is the most powerful known hallucinogenic drug known to man. It occurs in plants. It's been found in the bloodstream of the body. It's been found in the urine, and they have now got evidence that exists in the brain. We generate our own hallucinogenic drugs within the brain. These take us to places, these take us to other realities, realities that just sit very close to this one. 
And I think this is what mediums do. Mediums can generate this state automatically. And when they see things, they are attuning into alternate realities where they can attune into alternate truths. The difference is that ordinary people like myself, and I can't speak for yourself, can't do this naturally. When you take, take dimethyltryptamine, you can. Shamans do it all the time. People, when they go into deep hypnotic states, do it all the time. So clearly there is something here that is of great power. And again, I'm doing the science of it. My book, The Out-of-the-Body Experience, does the science. So this experience you had, would you say it was far greater than, say, a, a vivid dream? That you, oh, you, totally different. Have, but is it the same sort of thing happening in the brain, would you say, though? Yes. Dreaming, yeah. um, I in the book, um, I discuss lucid dreaming, uh, which is the scenario when you are dreaming, you become conscious of the fact you are dreaming and therefore can become part of your dream. You can't manipulate the dream, but you can do things within the dream. I think lucid dreaming is linked because lucid dreamers are not just dreaming. Because when you think about it, a dream is a three-dimensional recreation of reality inside your head that you walk within, you interface with other people, you see other things. The question is, who's the, who's the person creating that dream for you? When I have a dream and I'm walking along the street and I turn a corner, there's suddenly a place there. It's been rendered and created by my mind, but I'm within it, but it's not created by me. So in other words, it is an alternate reality. I then discuss um, out-of-the-body experiences that people have where they actually claim they float outside of their body and they move around. I discuss sleep paralysis, where you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't move. And you, you sense that there's something else in the room. This can be all explained neurologically. It's to do with the release by the pineal gland of something called melatonin, which is another neurotransmitter. But what, it, what, what modern neurology doesn't explain is how we create these imageries, images. Where do they come from? We use the argument, an hallucination. We can label an hallucination, but that doesn't mean we've explained it. You actually nail down a psychiatrist and say, when somebody has an hallucination, what are they seeing? Oh, well, they're just seeing confabulations. Well, what's a confabulation? Something created by the mind. Well, reality is created by the mind. You know, lest we forget, everything that we perceive is generated internally by the brain. So everything we perceive is an hallucination. It's just dreams or hallucinations that we don't share with other people. But there is evidence that people can share dreams. There's evidence that people share lucid dreams. There is an associate of mine, Robert Wagner, who's written the definitive book on lucid dreaming. And I strongly suggest anybody who's interested in this phenomenon get a hold of Robert's book. Watch the movie Inception. You know, this is the real deal. So what is happening is we're attuning into alternate realities. We're also attuning into realities that overlap on this one. When you wake up in the night and you dream and you think you've woken up, it's something called false awakenings. You think you've woken up, you go to the bathroom, you clean your teeth, bang, you're back in bed again. I did a, a program on BBC Radio Merseyside where a young guy from Birmingham phoned up. He'd, he had done that eight times. Eight times he had woken up and he'd gone and he'd done things. And then he was back in bed. Every time he got a bit further through the day. The last time it happened, he got through to the mid-afternoon. And he was at work and he looked out the window and he realized that it was dark and it was too early. Bang, he was back in bed again. 
This again is a known phenomenon. So where are we when we get up and we walk in our bedroom, a rendered recreation of our bedroom that seems so real, we don't even know we're dreaming. Mm. What about the notion of remote viewing? How does that all fit in? Remote viewing? Viewing, I was quite disappointed in, to be honest. Um, I, I had a whole chapter on remote viewing, um, and I was willing to believe that remote viewing does seem to be a very interesting phenomenon. And it is. But remote viewers think they are viewing things in this reality. They're not. That's why they never get things quite right. You know, for instance, if you look at the, the work of the major remote viewers, people like Ingo Swan, he always got things about 50 or 60% right. But there was 40% he got completely and utterly wrong. Now, if I'm in the position that I can remote view, say, for instance, you're in your studio now, and you go into a remote viewing state, and you go into the, the room next door. If you are remote viewing, you should see everything in that room in exactly the same way that you would see it if you'd walked in and looked at it through your own eyes. Correct? Remote viewers, they go in there and they'll, and they'll have some things right, but then the carpet will be the wrong colour or something will be not quite right. It's because it's an overlap world. It's a liminal world of it's, it's technically what's known as a hypnagogic state. It's a liminal between sleep and awake state where you enter alternate universes that overlap over this one. And they overlap and they seem like this one but they're not quite. And this is why remote viewing has never really succeeded as, as a tool of espionage, for instance, because the information they were getting was never strong enough. You know, and I have heard lots of remote viewers interviewed and they claim they could do it spontaneously, but they couldn't. And they also claim that they could actually go and view things precisely. But the amount of information they did get, the 50 or 60% that they did bring back was phenomenally accurate. So clearly they were some. Hello? Uh, yeah? Yeah, sorry. It just went blank then. Can you? Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah, let's move on to your latest book, uh, The Labyrinth of Time, which has just come out. Could you quickly tell us a little bit about the idea behind that book? Yeah, The Labyrinth of Time uh, effectively is, the, is really, I suppose, the second book of a trilogy. The first book, The Out-of-the-Body Experience, sort of lays down the, the out-of-the-body experience element of, of a grand hypothesis I'm pulling together. Labyrinth of Time deals with literally that, time. It's the labyrinth of time, the illusion of past, present and future. It's, it, it's like Steve's book, um, Steve Taylor's, only it takes Steve's, Steve's into different areas. And what I'm interested in is the neurology of time perception the philosophy of time perception. Exactly what is time? We all live within it. It, it defines everything we perceive. However, when we sit back and think about it, it becomes very confusing. As St. Augustine said, time is the kind of thing, if I don't think about it, I understand it completely, until I start to focus in and think exactly what is time? Am I travelling through time? Does time flow around me? Is time a river? You know, August, um, Marcus Aurelius, the, the Russian, the, 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 um, the Roman philosopher come emperor, used initially the first time time as a river analogy. 
If you think that time is a river, you have a little bit of a problem here because in order to know a river is flowing, you have to have riverbanks, don't you? In other words, if you didn't have riverbanks, you couldn't tell which direction a river was flowing or indeed if it was moving. The same is with time. In order to know that time is flowing, we need something to measure time by, time flow by. And this is not the same as a clock. A clock does not measure time flow. It measures nothing at all. It measures, for instance, a clock hand measures distance. It doesn't mention measure time. You can only ever have a pound of a pound, a pound of apples, for instance. You can have, you know, uh, weights that we measure things by. Time is different. You can never measure. You can only have a minute of a minute. If, if I'm making sense, here. you know, you, there's no arbitrary measurement. And a guy called J.W. Dunn came to the conclusion there must be another. There must be another time that we measure our time by. And there must be an observer in that time and an observer in all the other times. So the philosophy, quite deep. But I'm intrigued as well as to the quantum, the physics of it. You know, is it possible to travel backwards in time? As far as quantum physics is concerned, there is no difference between going back for, backwards in time or forwards in time. And on top of this, if you know there's something called a PET scan, positron emission tomography these things that, that scan through your body that you go into the hospital for I don't know if your readers your listeners know what a positron is a positron is an anti-electron an anti-electron is made of anti-matter in other words it is an electron traveling backwards in time now get your head around that these are things that people use the terminology of all the time Positrons were first suggested by Paul Dirac in the 1930s. We deal with antimatter all the time. This is not something from Star Trek. This is something that we use scientifically all the time. Now, somebody recently has come up with something called a transactional uh, interpretation of particle physics, and they actually suggest that reality is created by electrons traveling forwards in time, crashing into positrons going backwards in time and that creates the moment and that's what this moment is because if you think about it again the only thing that ever exists is the moment as soon as the future is out there we're waiting for it to happen when the future happens it becomes the moment and then the future becomes the past so the only thing that actually exists in any way is now and now it's just gone. <laughs> and if you think about that for a second, you'll realize that everything's an illusion. Suddenly, the past, never, the past has gone and the future is yet to exist. And all that we are existing in is this tiny bit of interface. Now, there is a, a, an English, an Oxford-based mathematician called Julian Barber, and he's written, and again, Oxford-based mathematician, again, this is not some new age guru, this is the serious deal, he's an academic, he's written a book called The End of Time, and he argues time is a complete and utter brain-created illusion. The brain creates time. It's not out there. It doesn't exist. So in which case, if time doesn't exist, what is the baseline of everything that's real? 
And everything that's real is something that I keep coming talking about, the zero-point field, the quantum vacuum, something that creates everything. Right. we better move on because time's running out. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's all right. Always does. Time, yeah. even though it doesn't exist, does yeah. seem to flow past um, this, doesn't it? What, what's going to be your next book? Because obviously you're, you're writing quite prolifically at the moment then. Yeah, the, um, let's see, uh, the Time book came out around about a month ago. Um, the book on the out-of-body experience came out in November. I've also co-edited a book on near-death experience for clinicians and medical people with two Austrian psychiatrists, which also came out in November. But the next book will be out probably this time next year. And its provisional title is called The Gateway to Infinity. And this book, I am so excited about this, it is untrue. The people I'm now interfacing with with this book are some of the world's leading thinkers. I mean, for instance, only two days ago, I was on the phone to Professor Bernard H., who is an American astrophysicist. Uh, and Bernard H. Uh, is one of the major researchers into something called the zero point field. And what I'll be doing in my next book is doing the science of how the pineal gland works and whether the pineal gland is in fact a stargate. Now, people out there will say, isn't this something, something similar to the writings of something called David Wilcock? And it isn't. David Wilcock writes similar things, but he, he, he were very different writers. And I'm trying to do the science, the neurology, the neurophysiology, the neurochemistry of how this can happen. And the idea that in the centre of our head, we have access to so much information, so much, that I think that this could be the next thing that will take humanity onto the next level of evolution. But we have to realise that we have this power within us. It's as if we... It, you know, science has taken humanity from being the centre of the universe to being nothing, to being periphery, where, where consciousness is not important. Quantum physics is bringing consciousness right back to being the ground state of everything that we, we see around us. It's consciousness that makes things happen. And I think the pineal gland is something that really will be the thing that will generate it. Um, and as I say, this book, I think will really excite a lot of people. Hopefully, he said, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, one final question. You're, you're going to be at uh, London's Earl's Court in the next week or so, uh, speaking there, leading a workshop. Would you like to just briefly tell the listeners about what, what yeah. you're going to be doing there? Yeah, absolutely. I'm delighted to have been invited to, to be part of the Mind, Body and Spirit Festival this year. Uh, and on um, a week on Sunday, uh, I think it's at 4.30, um, I will be doing a workshop on the out-of-body experience. Now, I'm delighted to announce that on stage with me will be a lucid light device, the machine that I had the experience with. Also with me will be doctor, uh, the two Austrian doctors who were the inventors of it. Not only this, but on stand 13 of the exhibition, from the Wednesday through to the Monday will be a lucid light machine that people can test for free for themselves. So there's no charge and you can have a five minute session on this thing. Test it for yourself. Come along 
and test it out. Then come along to my workshop and I will do the science behind it. And we'll do some one or two tests, one or two um, thought experiments about it as well, because it's, it's a group thing. Now, we're hoping to get quite a lot of people involved in this. So if you do happen to be in London and you are coming along to the show, please, please do check this out. Because believe me, once this hits the mainstream, which it will, it's going to be absolutely massive. And you can be in the position to turn around and say, I was one of the first people ever to try this out. Right. Well, it's been fascinating hearing what you've had to say, Anthony, and, and we'd like to thank you very much for speaking to us tonight. Um, we'll put all the details about your website and your future events on, on the um, Spirit Guys website and wish you well for the future, and thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks.